Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1950 film Rashomon. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing great, Sam. Uh, Barrett, this is a movie that I saw uh, in 1998 when I was a senior in college. Um, I saw I saw it twice. Um, I was I took a, a film studies course, a philosophy literature course on film. And we watched it in there. And then over the interim, I TA'd for the course. So I showed it to students and, and helped lead discussions on it. So I watched it twice and within a pretty short period of time and then hadn't seen it again until this week uh, where I watched it twice again. Uh, I watched it and then I watched it with my family. Um, I wanted, I was, I talked my kids into saying like this, this one's going to be, it's going to be worth it. So, uh, so that's, that's kind of my history with at least when I saw this film, um, what is your history with Rashomon? Yeah, I knew you would ask me that, Sam. And then the problem is, I can't remember. I can tell you my history with, <laughs> I can tell you my history with Kurosawa. Okay, well, uh, let's start with that then. Actually, yeah, I'll start with that. Um, you know, in the in the early mid seventies, I was um, I was reading in the New York Times like every good teenager, and so a lot of the stuff that I learned about. Uh, the arts kind, kind of came through the pages of the New York Times. So I remember reading it was when uh, Durzu Uzulu came out in 1975, which was kind of considered Kurosawa's comeback film. You know, he'd had a really bad run about seven or eight years. He actually had a suicide attempt. And so I don't think, I don't think I've ever actually seen Durzu Uzulu. I read about it. And then I did see this film in 1980, which is Kagamusha, uh, The Shadow Warrior. Uh, and then I saw Ron. Uh, his kind of adaptation of Lear. Some at some point, obviously, I worked my way back to Rashomon, but I don't remember exactly when that was. So, uh, is is he somebody who you feel like you've seen a, a lot of his movies? I mean, because he he's yeah. yeah yeah I've seen I've seen quite a few. I've probably seen um, oh gosh, probably about well a dozen for sure. But I have to confess. Um, I look at some of the titles and I think, I think I saw that, but I really can't remember. For example, I think I've seen Seven Samurai. It's hard to believe I haven't, but I have very, I don't really have a very clear memory of, of, of having seen it. Um, but I've seen at least a dozen for sure. Yeah. I will say my freshman year of college, uh, Kurosawa just kept showing up in my life. So I, my first semester of college, we read King Lear in an honors course with Mary Ellen Ashcroft. And she showed us probably 40 minutes of Ron um, mm -hmm. to talk about like adaptation. And then in, I'm holding up, uh, only Barrett can see this, but I'm holding up the film forum um, handout from my freshman year. And one of the, one of the movies we watched there uh, uh, January 8th of 1996 was uh, Kurosawa's Dreams. Um, Cause I think that had recently come out um, mm -hmm. fairly recently. So I, I watched that. And then I saw Rashomon, uh, and subsequently I've seen the Seven Samurai. I actually just rewatched that uh, over quarantine. Um, I got the projector up, and my family was gone, and I sat down. And that is a long movie. That's a three-hour and forty-five-minute movie. Um, so, and I was I was trying to get my kids to watch that, and the hardest part was the length. Um, but so when I told them about Rashomon, I said it's eighty-eight minutes. Like it's <laughs> not it's not going to be like that. And then I've also seen the movie uh, Akiru. Um, yes. which is the only thing I've seen of Kurosawa's that isn't, I guess dreams is we'll take, we'll put shelf dreams for a second. That isn't like a samurai movie. 
uh, Akira was set in, you know, modern day or contemporary Japan. And I, as I'm looking through his filmography, there are all these films. I mean, he has like cop dramas and things like this. And I'm like, I should watch those. That I bet those are like uh, Tishiro Mifune and, and, you know, is in a lot of those too. And I thought that would be, I should probably like visit those movies. I bet they're great. Yeah, high, high and low, and the bad sleep well. The bad sleep well is kind of a Hamlet adaptation in some ways. But then some of the earlier stuff along those lines: uh, Drunken Angel, uh, Stray Dog, which both came before Rashomon. Those are really good with Mufuni. What's interesting about Akiru is it's one of the only films he made during that period when he was doing his collaborations with Mufuni. It's one of the only films he made without Mufuni. Um, they, they continued until 1965, and they made a total of 16 films together. So they're one of those great film director, one of those great actor-director pairings. So, uh, you know, like John Ford and John Wayne uh, and uh, Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro, uh, and to a certain extent, Scorsese and DiCaprio as well. I will say about Akiru, though, as I was watching Rashomon, I, I was so drawn to the woodcutter. And mm-hmm. I was like, man, this guy's great in his face. And then I realized, well, he's the star of Akiru. That's why I've seen that face. And Akiru is not a short movie. And it's like, I have I have meditated on this face for a long time. And it it wasn't until this morning when I was looking some things up, I realized, oh, that's uh, that's uh, Takashi Shimura. It's like, that's why I know that face is because he is somebody I've spent that time with. Well, it's interesting you mentioned his face because one of the things that's true about Rashomon and about Kurosawa in general is Kurosawa had a great admiration for silent films. Uh, and there's many ways in which Rashomon kind of has a silent film aesthetic to it. But one of the things about silent films is when Gloria Swanson in Sunset Boulevard talks about the move from silence to talkies, she says, we didn't need dialogue, we had faces. That's right. And, that, and, and you know that's kind of a natural gravitation of the silent film towards the face because that's the most expressive uh, part of the human anatomy. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because that's one of the things after watching this movie, I had a long conversation with my daughter um, who's 13 uh, about the movie. And um, she was commenting on sort of the acting of the movie and how big the acting was. And I pointed out the, um, you know, the silent film thing. And she said, yeah, that's actually what I loved about it because for her, she's, this is only the second subtitled movie she's seen. She loved the fact that she didn't have to spend all of her time looking at the words that she could actually look at what was happening, Um, which I don't know, you know, I I, I don't know, curious, I was really interested in the visual image and partially like having so there is not a lot of dialogue or language and a lot is stuff happening on the screen. I will say I felt the same way that I got to um, really drink in what I was seeing on the screen because I didn't have to keep looking down to see what someone was saying. So, mm-hmm. um, so she picked up on that as well and saw that as a, a real strength. So now she, whenever we talk about movies that are not in English, she'll always ask me like how much talking is in this because <laughs> am I, am I going to have to read a lot? And not that she doesn't want to, but she realizes it takes her out of, you know, she's not trained her eye yet to kind of move in both ways. Um, so one of the things you said, which I think is is a, a, a great Rashomon comment uh, at the very beginning here, is when I asked you about your history with this film, is that I can't remember. <laughs> I can't remember when I saw it, which is a perfect way, a perfect uh, inroads uh, into this movie, um, because this movie is about a lot of things. Um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna give you some paths to go down, and you can choose you can choose which path. I just wrote this is a movie about dot dot dot, mm-hmm. and I wrote um, I wrote memory human nature, truth, storytelling, society, civilization, any of those paths you want to start with? 
Well, it's certainly a story. Yeah, it's certainly a story about about truth. Okay, let's let's start so let's start with that one because one of the things I kept thinking about, Sam, is as you get these four different stories, I kept thinking about the so-called synoptic problem in the Gospels, um, and 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 how there's you know one approach to the synoptic problem. Back when I was uh, in my early days as, as a Christian, I bought a great big book uh, edited by Gleason Archer called. Um, something about Bible difficulties. And I, and I remember being obsessed with the problem of the synoptic differences. So, you know, why does Mark say that the cock crows twice and Matthew says it crows once? And you get these answers like, well, if you're gonna crow twice, you have to crow once uh, before you can, you know, and, and it, it's all this, you know, it's the harmony of the gospels thing. And what it fails to take into account, I think, um, is the fact that, human beings naturally have different perspectives on things. Uh, and so what is, what is truth versus what is fact is some ways in what this film is trying to play with. So you have the fact that there's a dead body. You can't get around that. But the truth of how the body came to be dead, it depends on these different perspectives. And then as the film itself illustrates, those perspectives are affected by the human desire to think well of oneself uh, or one's egoism, whatever you want to call it. And so then we bend reality in order to conform to the picture that helps us, puts us in the, in, in the best light. So then truth becomes um, inaccessible because in a way we all create our own version of the truth. I mean, I realize that's kind of a postmodern cliche, but that's what this film is in a way. It's, a, it's, it's kind of moving to the, the postmodern uh, perspective on things. But the other thing I want to say is what's interesting is that all, all the camera can do is give you the image. The, the, camera can't, the camera can't fudge it. So the camera can only show you the reality. So there's no way with the camera to distinguish which of the four is quote truer than the other because the camera is giving you the reality for that eyewitness so i i, I think film is is uniquely uh equipped to present us with the dilemma of, of that those different perspectives right i love that idea that the that the 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 truth or the reality or whatever word we want to and, and once you start to have these conversations words start to break down a little bit like well, what do we mean by that but like that it exists in the space between these stories and actually the more stories you hear in some ways the the more complicated it gets the more contradictions you get but almost maybe the more real or true it gets because you actually the more perspectives you're getting you are getting sort of different uh different takes on this as you think about the different stories we hear different versions of this story are there things that stand out to you as differences between them and i'm particularly interested if you picked up on any visual differences or performative differences between the stories and not just like event differences yeah, a couple. Yeah, I, th I think uh, two sig two significant performative differences come up when you get to the woodcutter story, because um, one of the thing uh, one of the things that happens in the woodcutter story is you finally get a more um, uh, I, I might call it more of a feminist view of of the events. Because um, one of the things that bothered me this time around, Sam, is that everybody talks about this as a film about a murder, but it's a film about a rape. 
and, and and maybe one of the reasons why that's not played with in the same way is because there's no doubt who raped whom. I mean, that's not, there's not a question of the fact there. But when you get to the woodcutter story, suddenly um, the wife becomes this character with incredible agency. And so the story changes and her performance changes. I mean, her performance is amazing. She plays like three different people in, in this film. And so that really happens in, in, in the woodcutter story. And then the other performative difference is, um, because it is a difference of action, but it's also a difference of performance, is the sword fight, of course, becomes a very different affair in the woodcutter story than it is, of course, when the bandit is telling the story or when the samurai is telling the story. It's a bunch of these guys who sort of, it, it's almost like they don't want to fight each other, but they feel like they have to, and they're not quite sure how to go about it. And they flail about in almost, get you know, talking about silent film, almost in a Keystone Cops uh, comedy uh, manner. I'm glad you said that because as we watched it as a family, like we actually were laughing at that because yeah. it it's very funny how, you know, you see the first version and, you know, and the, the bandit is talking about how we cross swords 23 times and how, you know, no one's ever made it to 20 with me. And, and then you watch them in, you know, and, and again, is that the real account or is that, um, is that the woodcutter watching it? through the eyes of my daughter who said out loud, they're really bad at this. And, you know, and it's like, so then he's projecting, you know, more onto it. Um, yeah. You know, I, one of the things that I was looking for because I watched it twice in a short period of time, and I will say I was unsuccessful in this, although I'm sure there are other things, but there's one thing I picked up and this could be nothing, but I found it really interesting. What I was looking for was when you look at the storyteller in their version of the story, are there things specific to them that might be minor details that appear in their version of the story, but not in any others. And I'll give you an example of what I was looking for. Cause I noticed it in the bandit story, but I couldn't find it in the, I couldn't find things in the others, but I wondered if they were there. And again, I could be totally off base with this, but if you watch the wood or the, uh, the bandit story, he's constantly swatting away flies. Mm. It's like getting bitten. And, and, and it's like, it's kind of the, th I read that as, when you're telling the story, when you're telling the story of something that happened to you, you're going to notice things that happened to you that when somebody else is telling the story of the events, they're not aware that you're constantly being bugged by these, by these flies. But for him, that was part of it in the same way he talks about, like, if this breeze hadn't blown by, none of this would have happened, you know? And so it's almost like he's being agitated also by these flies and things like that. And I, so I don't know, maybe I'm projecting a lot onto it, but I desperately wanted to see in the other stories, like, Oh, you notice in the wife's story, she's doing this or this is half. I couldn't find it in other things, but I, I it was, but it, it just jumped out at me so much that he never, in no other version of the story is he swatting away flies, but he's constantly doing it in his own. And I thought that was such an, I don't, and maybe that's just a, mm -hmm. something that Mufune was doing, but like, but I thought that was, that jumped out at me as, as a, a pretty real thing that when you hear somebody even tell a story from their life, that it's not just from their point of view, but, there are details that are theirs that no one else is going to have. Yeah, no, I, that, that's a really interesting observation, Sam. And I don't think that you, I don't think you get that from any of the other characters. I think uh, because in, in a sense, Mifune's uh, telling it, it is kind of the framing, and so he kind of you know with the breeze and the swatting at the flies, he he kind of sets up the atmosphere of the day. Uh, but then the other stories more focus on what happens after they actually get to the grove. Um, and that's and that's where that's where all the stories kind of take place. Well, except of course for the woodcutter walking in as well, 
he doesn't seem bothered by the flies, but of course he's kind of fully dressed. And so it's a different kind of different kind of atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what is the significance? Uh, you said, you know, in some ways it's a very postmodern uh, sort of discussion of truth and reality. What's the significance of this being set in? I saw lots of different centuries this was set in, but I most commonly saw the 11th century, like th that it is set in a, in a distant past because it doesn't well, need I, to be. Yeah. Well, I, I don't, well, I don't know. I, I, th I think he wants it set there because I think, you know, for a Japanese audience to uh, kind of have an understanding of the social status of the samurai to kind of know that you're in a world where bandits exist and samurai are sort of, you know, the people that, that you expect to protect you against the bandits. You've got the, you've got the temple and the tradition of the temple being inhabited by the demon, the Rashomon. So I, I think, I think he, he wants, I don't think those elements would work as well in a more in a more modern setting. So I, I think he he wants that sense of um, this kind of uh, medieval world where things are are, are you know, a, a little wild because all this is kind of happening at the edge of society. Obviously, there's a social order, and that's why they're having the trial. But you also want this sense of a, a little bit of a wild world where this can right. almost a wild west kind of feel. Right, and that is the significance of the Rashomon Gate. Is that is the the gate between the city and the wilderness, right? right. Like between civilization and not civilization, and there's significance to the fact that that the gate is in disrepair, it's falling mm -hmm. apart, that the commoner is breaking apart and burning the gate. You know, if that is the symbol of civilization, he's that's that's his firewood. You know that that he's breaking it up. You know, as they're uh, as they're there in the rain. Um, Another thing that 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 I thought a lot about was that this is a movie made five years after World War II, five years after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, so I'm sort of curious your thoughts on you know uh, on what does this have a particular meaning in the context of sort of post-war Japan, really on the heels of Second World War. Yeah, I mean, some people have tried to to read the to read the film kind of allegorically uh, in, in that sense. I certainly think, obviously, in terms of the um, in terms of the way the film is an inquiry into human nature, uh, an inquiry into the evil that people are capable of. You know, in some ways, you could argue that it's a bit of a post-war film. But I think it's more it's greater significance as a post-war film is more of its cultural significance, right? In that it was the first Japanese film to get widespread recognition in the West. You know, 1951, it won the grand prize at the Venice Film Festival. Um, I think that's that to me is what's really significant about it. And the other thing significant about it is the way that um, Kurosawa of the three great Japanese directors, Ozu, Mizuguchi, and Kurosawa, uh, he's often considered kind of the most Western of those three. And so you even get the use of Bolero, uh, an adaptation of Bolero in, in, in the film. So to me, what's interesting about it as a post-war film is not so much theme or content of the film, but the film is an object of art that actually enables Japanese culture to start to regain some currency or gain some currency for the first time in, in, in the West. Another thing that I, that I thought about, so, so you've taught this course before, or not this course, you've taught this film before in a course, right? So you mm -hmm. shared, you shared with me, um, I don't remember what, what year those questions were from, but, um, what were, what are what were students' responses to this uh, to this film? Uh, as, as I re as I recall, students were pretty uh, pretty engaged by it. I think we had some of the same conversations that you probably had with your daughter. 
along, along those lines. Um, I think, you know, one of my experiences in teaching um, a lot of older films, including Rashomon, is that students are really quite surprised by how complex and sophisticated uh, an older film can be. And so I think that was, you know, that was the notion of this complex narrative, I think was really fascinating to the students. So I, I, I thought it taught pretty successfully. Yeah, well, one of the things that jumped out at me re-watching this movie after so much time is that I had collapsed a lot of the movie in my head. Um, I'd forgotten about, I, I remembered that it was these four stories that were framed by this other story, but I forgot about how much, this movie has a lot of parentheses in it, where it's mm. like, we're saying this, now we're going to bracket off and we're going to tell this other story. And there's there was more to it than I thought. I forgot about, I forgot about the, the fact that this has elements of like a courtroom, uh, you know, a courtroom drama a little bit in that we keep cutting away to the actual, like watching the testimonies. Um, so I thought that was interesting. I didn't remember that's how the stories came about. And even within that, that you get multiple versions of how the bandit was caught and what his relationship to the horse was, um, you know, that those things, that, you know, kind of all of those little nested embedded stories. And even in there you have, this uh, Rashomon issue of, you know, what was the nature of how he was, how he was caught? You know, was he sick because there was something poisoned he drank in the water or did he not know how to ride a horse and get thrown from the horse? You even, you even get that in there. Um, so I loved that. And then I also, I loved the, particularly the framing of the, the court scenes that you had the, um, uh, you had the person testifying pretty much directly addressing camera um, mm -hmm. and it was always kind of the same shot and in very citizen Kane like fashion in the back right corner were the people who were telling you this story. Cause the thing you also think you need to, that I needed to keep reminding myself of is that even the stories we were hearing were their accounts of the accounts, right? So, so it's not like we really hear the bandit speak. It's not like we really hear the medium speak or the wife speak. We hear, what does the woodcutter and priest remember about that? Right. So they're constantly there reminding you, this is our account of this account. Uh, and I loved that framing. In, in, in some ways, Sam, this makes the film even more Conradian than either Citizen Kane or uh, Apocalypse Now, because that's exactly, exactly what you get in uh, not only in Heart of Darkness, but one of Conrad's later novels, Chance. Uh, there are so many um, quotations within quotations that you you end up you're you're reading these these accounts at like five times removed, uh, and so it's this it's this consistent nesting. So yeah, you're right. We we tend to forget that the only direct narration we get, or the only direct depiction we get, is is the them huddling in the temple under the rain. Uh, that's really the only direct. Everything else, as you said, is 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 reported. So actually, by the time you get to say. Um, you know the woodcutter's story in the in the trial. I mean, you're like three you're like three different levels of narrative in, and mm -hmm. uh, and we don't even stop to think about how reliable that is. We sort of we sort of trust the filmmaker on that one, but we are getting things at quite a quite several removes. Right. So so people thought Christopher Nolan did a lot of parentheses with Inception, but uh, but you know, 55 years earlier, 60 oh, years yeah. earlier. We were already doing because it is when you once you start to open your mind up to that, like it, this movie becomes really complicated because you're you're I'm trying to think of whose perspective of perspective of perspective am I seeing? And the fact that uh, the woodcutter 
that you actually within this get him telling two versions of this story and even the second one which uh i think we're trained to think okay this is the one where he's actually gonna like reveal what happened that the movie points out that there's a lie or something embedded in that so it's like well we still can't trust that and if we can't trust that can we trust any of this you know which i think becomes this like uh maybe we should get to the character of the priest right because uh the 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 you could just have the woodcutter and the commoner to if you just wanted to tell these stories but the priest plays a a really important function i think in the uh furthest out parentheses you know the 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 the, the story that frames all of this um so uh, what are your thoughts on having that character of the priest and what his function is in the in the totality of this movie well, before I answer that, I want to say there's one more Christopher Nolan connection, which I don't think is intentional. It may simply reflect my own weak-mindedness. But I find myself found myself memento-like by the time I got to the third story, trying to remember exactly how it was different from the first and the second stories. Right. Uh, oh, I think, yeah, I think there's a lot of memento in this. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you know, because the, the second telling partially erases the first telling, etc. So it's kind of a palimpsest uh, in, in a way. Well, I mean, the, 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 the priest, I mean, uh, you know, I'll say the obvious thing about the priest, right? I mean, the, the priest is, a, is, is he's kind of like the Greek chorus. Um, you know, he's there to, uh, uh, he's there to provide a kind of um, editorial commentary, right? Um, yeah, he's, he's the one who goes through a crisis of faith. And there's a, there's, it, it's, it's a little, it's a little cliche, Right, the idea that you know I'm going to he despairs, and then when the woodcutter says he's going to adopt the child, you know you've restored my faith in human nature. Um, I think we're supposed to see that as a little facile. I mean, I I I I think he's a. I'm not sure he's an entirely trustworthy guide. I I think he's there as you can try out his perspective. Um, you know, his initial despair seems a little naive. Uh, and his comfort at the end seems a little a little too easy. So I'm not sure. I don't take the priest as the voice or the uh, the authority of Kurosawa. I, I take him as one more perspective on on these events. And you can kind of um, I, I I don't take him as the last word. In other words, mm -hmm. I don't I don't think he's I don't think because of the priest I'm now supposed to step away from the film and say oh okay it's okay the the, the woodcutter turns out that people really are good at heart. No, the woodcutter demonstrates that people are complicated, uh, that they're capable of stealing knives and pawning them and, and taking in a child. And the priest is a little too simplistic in that he either has to despair of human nature or have faith in human nature. What you have to do is you have to uh, recognize the complexity of human nature. Uh, and it's just not, just not, it's not one way or the other. To me, that's the pre I think that that's what the priest helps us to see, that, that the priest himself is an inadequate um, uh, Oracle. So do you think that this, and maybe this is a too simplistic of a question. Do you think this movie, if it is a meditation on human nature or, or the human condition, do you ultimately see this as a deeply negative movie as a, in terms of its view of that as a, it wouldn't be a deeply positive movie, but does it, does it provide hope or, or do you think that that, that that's sort of a, uh, a, a snapshot we get of a potential way to view this, but ultimately that's not 
I mean, well, what is what? I guess yeah. What is the message when we get to that point? I yeah. guess I think I think paradoxically, Sam, in a movie that questions whether or not we can know the truth, I think that's the deep truth that the movie communicates. I think I, I think the movie the movie communicates um, a certain amount of epistemological humility, which I think is really important, um, and I think it also communicates complexity about human nature, which I also think is a deep truth as well. So, um, to me, that's the, the, I don't know if that's either optimistic or pessimistic. Pessimistic, I guess. To me, that's realistic. Um, I think people are capable of being uh, cruel and evil, and I think people are capable of being good and beneficent. Um, I think that there are certain things we can know for sure, and certain things we can't know for sure. Uh, and so, insofar as the movie reflects that view to me, um, I find that um, I find that helpful. I, I I don't want a movie that tells me that life is only awful. And I don't want a movie that tells me life is only good because that's not the way life is. So to me, the movie captures the complexity of the human experience. Yeah, I will say that the as I was thinking about this, the the work of literature that this reminded me of, and I I, I realize the peril I'm getting into talking to a literature prof, and I am definitely not that. Um, is uh, is a book by Dostoevsky, and I and it's the Brothers Karamazov. This this there 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 are elements that I and I'll explain why this is. And I know that um, Kurosawa actually does an adaptation of The Idiot. Um, mm-hmm. I think after this, I can't remember. I think it's after this. Yeah, um, but it reminds me of um, some of my initial readings of the Brothers Karamazov, where it also has some kind of stories that frame stories. Uh, it also has a has its its own courtroom. <laughs> Uh, courtroom stuff. And I also, I remember the first time I read the brothers um, thinking about the scene at the very, I mean, the brothers is a lot about, it has a lot to do with um, human nature, humans wrestling with uh, God, humans wrestling with what is good and what isn't, what is redemptive and what isn't. And, uh, and then it ends with this kind of small story of Alyosha and these boys at this, stone in the square and there and you know and it, it it has this kind of like at the end of Rashomon it has this like potential positive upswing but that's also not a part of the book that a lot of people when I read about the brothers people are far more interested in Ivan and far more interested in these sort of big struggles with God so I mean it reminded me of that like that you could you could read it and find different central uh central themes in there um so it's a but I also you know, and, and maybe this is naively as a, um, what well, was probably 21, 22 year old. Like I was really moved by the story at the end of the brothers and saying, well, you know, there's a chance that this whole long novel is set up to make sense out of this one sort of potentially hopeful point, you know? And I'd say like, well, you could, you could argue something similar about this movie that you have all this stuff going on. And then there's this point at the end. And if you just said the point at the end, it doesn't make sense. You know, that there sort of that there is this other risk and not necessarily the priests who restored my faith in humanity, but this this idea that when the baby is there, that there are these two responses. And this is actually what I wrote. I reread my paper from from 1998. This is what I wrote about that. There are these two responses to a cruel world or the sort of terrible aspects of human nature or if we want to say to an absurd world like like one response is to just sort of give into it which is what the commoner does he's like well somebody's going to take these anyhow it might as well be me if everything's bad and everything's a lie like i might as well do whatever i want and then you see the woodcutter say 
because the world is so terrible, because we're all so terrible, because I'm so terrible, I need to do something. I need mm-hmm. to make choices um, when I can, and I won't always make this choice. And I still will be the person who took that knife and sold it and would probably do it again. But this is my rebellion against the awfulness of the world or the absurdity of the world is like, I, I need to try to push back against that. And so I, I, I find the woodcutter response deeply moving. Even if I, I mean, I agree with you that the priest seems like, um, it's sim- it's simplistic that it's like this one thing can do that, but that's actually a message you get in certain characters in the brothers as well. You know that that this one good act can, can be the thing that is my salvation. This giving an onion can be my salvation. So um, this makes me want to read the brothers again too, and sort of think about these things together. Well, you know, so I'm going to go in a different direction. First of all, I I totally agree with you. I think that you know one of the things that is um, is fascinating about about brothers Karamazov is that. Uh, in fact, a lot of great works of literature that it takes a domestic situation and uses that to talk about kind of these huge metaphysical ontological issues. Um, and what struck me watching Rashomon this time was um, how Shakespearean it is. Um, it's it's not surprising that Kurosawa made at least three other films that are explicitly Shakespearean. Throne of Blood, which is his adaptation of Macbeth. Uh, and as I've already indicated, uh, The Bad Sleep Well, which is kind of his version of Hamlet, and then Ron, which is obviously Lear. But watching this film, um, thinking about along the lines that you're talking about, I thought this is actually very Shakespearean in a Lear sense. This is really what Shakespeare does in Lear. Shakespeare takes the breakdown of the nuclear family, he takes a domestic drama, and he uses it to talk about the great realities. Uh, is, there, are, are, is there a God? Are there gods? Why, are, why, why do people behave so badly? Why do we turn on each other? Um, and I realize, I think in many ways, this is as much uh, a King Lear film as Ron is, and in some ways even more interestingly, because it takes human life at the scale at which we all live it. Uh, and it and it raises those really profound questions about uh, about who we are, um, how we behave in a world where um, both cruelty and kindness seem to be equally rampant. Are there other things you want to talk about uh, with uh, with Rashomon? Well, just a couple of technical things. Um, you know, one of the really fam- uh, the the cinematographer that worked on the film was one of Japan's great cinematographers. And one of the things that this film is famous for doing cinematographically is shooting directly into the sun. Uh, and so when the woodcutter is walking through the through the woods, and by the way, the way that tracking shot is done is sheer genius. Um, they had a they had a straight uh, a straight track, but then the camera uh, the camera moved or I'm sorry, the, the woodcutter was walking straight and the camera was moving around him. But anyway, shooting the shooting the camera uh, directly into the sun Cinematographers have been told you couldn't do that. Um, I don't know if they thought it would burn out the lens or whatever. So Kurosawa, or his cameraman, is the first person actually to, to do that. Uh, so that ha- that had influence on other cinematographers in terms of what could be done. And of course, the other thing is um, his relationship with the West. That uh, you know, the Seven Samurai uh, inspires you know Magnificent Seven, uh, the Hidden Castle. Uh, inspires uh, Star Wars. Uh, I mean, he has this really interesting relationship where he's been influenced by Hollywood because you know his samurai films are considered Jap- Jap- Japan's version of westerns. But then he, in turn, influences uh, Hollywood. So I think that's he really has a lot of a lot of resonance uh, in in that respect. Although his efforts to make a Hollywood film was 
was a disaster. So, um, when, with, what, what, what would be an example? Like, what would be an example of that? The directors on Torah, Torah, Torah. Okay. Uh, 1970 and that was uh, that was kind of the beginning of that really awful period uh, of his career when things were not going well so if you we've already named a whole bunch of uh, Kurosawa movies and I think most of the ones we named are things that we would say yep that's definitely worth a watch uh, if somebody wanted to take the next step what would be a movie you would recommend from him I think I would probably do a key room um, it's, 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 a, it's a very different film, but I think it's, a um, it's, I, I, I really, I, I really love the film in terms of how it deals with the issue of mortality, but also it deals with, I think you get some strong cultural differences between Western and, and Eastern views of medicine and how you deal with, with illness. So it's a very quiet film, but it's a very affecting film. So I think I do a keyword. Uh, and then you mentioned sort of the, uh, Kurosawa is one of the sort of three big Japanese, uh, directors. Uh, is there a, is there a film from one of the others that you would say, Oh, this actually, this would be a really worthwhile selection yeah, coming up in about three weeks. Okay. So we'll just, <laughs> we'll hit pause on that for right now. And out, um, we're going to do a Mizuguchi in about three weeks. Uh, but before that I, w- I would recommend, um, probably the, uh, probably the greatest of the Japanese directors is Ozu, Ushiro Ozu. And so I would say te- Tokyo story. Uh, that's probably the go-to for Ozu. Fantastic. So, what do you have for us for next week? Okay, Sam, I, I, we got we got to do a change uh, a change of pace here. We've been doing black and white. We've been doing kind of grim stuff. So, I'm going to go to a genre that we've kind of touched on, but I want to do the actual, in in my view, the embodiment or the epitome of the genre of the musical, uh, and do Singing in the Rain. Uh, just a couple of years later, I think I think it's 52. I didn't check, but I think it's 52. Um, you know, so uh, Hollywood musical, full color. Um, we're not going to explore any issues of the uh, depravity of human nature or raise any deep metaphysical questions. But we're going to have a really good time with some fantastic dancing and singing and also a little bit of a lesson in music history as well. So we'll get back and talk about silent films again next week. I'm very excited for this. I have... I have to admit, I've seen parts of of Singing in the Rain. I don't think I've ever sat through uh, through the movie. I've been I've like walked into rooms where people were watching it and watched parts of it. Um, I am sort of hit and miss with musicals, so we'll see. Uh, but I'm excited to watch this. I mean, this is this is one of the sort of apex movies that when you when you look at lists, this is often the musical that tops the lists of or the that is the top musical on film lists, things like this. So I'm really excited to like to take a uh <laughs> it's funny to say this in light of your introduction, but to take a real serious look at this and like and what I mean by that is like to sit down focused on I really want to watch this movie instead. Cause I, I think I have this tendency with musicals that that there's I start to like veer off and think about other things in so i want to focus on this when i'm watching and i'm really excited for that and, yeah, and as i alluded to I, I one of the reasons i like this is it's got i think it's got a lot of things going on and part of it is it, it really is about that transition from uh silent films to talkies uh and so i think to me it's a bit of film history as well as uh, a really great musical fantastic well barrett thank you so much for uh, recommending the rewatch of rashomon um this is a movie i i loved watching it with my uh, with my kids. And, and I will say, I loved this conversation with you. I also loved the conversation my daughter and I had about this and she got her, got her excited to want to watch other things too, which is the best thing that a movie like this can do is to say like, well, let's, what else could we, what else could we dig into? What else could we look at? So thank you for recommending this. Um, if you are enjoying this, you can go to 
uh, video store podcast at word or dot wordpress.com. If you want to go back and listen to, uh, to old episodes, this is the 39th film that we've talked about. So singing in the rain will be number 40, uh, but you can find all of our old episodes on there. It's sorted by, um, sorted by decades. So if there's particular decades of film that you're interested in, you know, we've covered lots and lots of decades, have lots of representatives from those, but we will be back next week to talk about singing in the rain in the video store. <laughs>